and welcome to Critical Mass Radio Show. This is our special LinkedIn Live edition. I'm super excited to have Bill Flynn, author of a new book, just came out earlier this year. We're going to be talking about it, and hopefully you'll be interested enough to contact Bill and go forward. So, Bill, further, faster. What a great title. What is the main idea of this book? Well, the main idea is, um, so if you start a business in 1995, there was a 50-50 chance that it would last five years and 25% chance of it lasting 15. Um, The bottom line is that most businesses fail. Many struggle and few thrive. However, most of that failure is completely avoidable. Uh, We've just never been taught, and I've been studying this for about 30 years, and I put down my 30 years of experience. I've done 10 startups, and I've advised dozens and dozens of other companies I've spoken around the uh, around the country and around the world to hundreds and hundreds of CEOs and asked them the same kind of questions. So I just put it all down in one book. And, and I said it came out earlier this year. Can you uh, tell us when you launched your book? Sure. I'm, 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 a, I'm a good Irish boy, Billy Flynn from uh, Massachusetts, <laughs> right outside of Boston. Uh, and I, we launched it on, on St. Patrick's Day this year. Okay. So many of us know that mid-March kind of time frame as a time when we got our world sort of turned upside down with COVID-19. So as, you know, I'm curious, how was it to do a book launch at the in the midst of what, you know, was a very distracting event? Yeah, we were a bit ambivalent about should we put it out or not? Should we wait? Um, and the book I wrote is, it's not, I, I didn't write the book to make any money. And most people don't make any money. <laughs> so... That's it would probably. really get the message out. Um, and actually, to, to that, I, I do live those words. I give the book away for free. If people want to just go to my site and download the book and read it on a PDF, they can. I love it if they go to Amazon and buy it or whatever. I have it in all sorts of formats and things. Mm-hmm. But I'm, I'm much more about getting the message out of, hey, it doesn't have to be this hard. So we decided that since that was what we were trying to do, let's just get it out there and let people start working the problem using the book, it's it's a DIY book. It has resources on, on a website that go with it. I tried to write it. I actually didn't write it myself. I tried to put it together in a really simple way. So it's not all this jargon and all this stuff. So hopefully it's really useful to folks. And I've gotten really, I mean, it's only early days, but so far the feedback is really good. It's fi- it's still five stars on, I'm up to 19 reviews. I'm still at five stars, so. That's great. So um, if you give the book away for free, that's obviously not a major source of income for you. No. <laughs> what 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 is it that you do for a living, Bill? Yeah. So, well, I did startups forever. I did twenty over twenty five years. I did ten different startups. So I did pretty well. I was five for six, actually, mm-hmm. for a while. Two IPOs, seven acquisitions. Um, generally, I was not this founder. I was the guy who came in and scaled the thing. So sales, marketing, that kind of stuff. And then about four or five years ago, I decided to become a coach. I had a really good experience between five and six startups, five and six. And it kind of planted a seed, and I wanted to explore that more. And our good friend, Harlan Geyser, and I uh, started on the same day. We went to the same training class together. And so I think in February of 2016 was my first sort of exposure to this coaching thing. And that's what I do full time. I I, um, have a handful of clients that I work with, uh, and I basically teach them this framework that's mostly the book. The book is sort of the 80-20 rule, if you will. I really I'm a big fan of Pareto. And mm. I didn't write a book to answer all the problems. I said, you know, here are the ones that come up most often. Let's just work on these first, and then we can work on the other stuff. So, so I started doing that. I teach the entire framework to my clients over about a two-year period, give or take. Okay. So who is the target audience for 
the book? Who who do you coach and work with, and who gets the most? Who have you you found in writing the book and having people read it and talk about it with you? Who who's getting the most value out of the the um, DIY aspect of your book? Yeah. So my um, my target customer is a mindset. It's not anything else other than that. Okay. These are people who are humble, who lead teams, meaning organizations as well, teams of teams as well. They're lifelong learners, and they're very comfortable challenging the status quo on a regular basis. Anyone who's that way will get something from my book. So, so when you get somebody who's read, are you getting people who have read your book unsolicited by you, you know, and, and making comment? And if so, what's that like? as an author yeah it's kind of cool because i never i don't really like to write rick uh uh i do i do write i love to learn and i find that i learn better when i write right so i'll read a book and then if i really the book really jazzes me i'll write a little blog post on it like a a page or two but it's really mostly for me i figure if i can get it down to like uh, a page then i probably got it pretty crisply um but uh when people, I, I read, when I'm having a bad day, I go to Amazon and read yes. my five-star reviews. <laughs> yes. it's, it's so cool. And there are people on there. I know I know most of them because it's early on, so most of these people I know. But some people I haven't seen in 20 years. And they wrote such wonderful things. It's such a great, it's a great uplifting thing to, to see. So I'm, I'm really glad it's gotten some good good reviews so far. So, so you're, you're um, for those of you that are budding business authors, let me uh, give you a, a sense, at least from my perspective, you come up with a title that is um, catchy, further, faster, but the but the power is really in the subtitle, the next set of words, which is really what is hopefully gets people to take the book off the shelf and take it to the cash register and make the purchase and then hopefully take it home and read it. So yeah. you, have, you have some pretty audacious, I think, in a I positive do. way, claims about how you're going to take the guesswork out yes. of growth. What is that about? What, what What's the secret there? Sure. Well, Abraham Lincoln says the best way to predict the future is to create it yourself. I love that saying. And I think I think one of your last guests said the same thing. Uh, if I remember, I was listening to your, uh, your 3P guy. Um, so that's what I do is I help you to figure out how to create the future. And there's a bunch of sort of con connected exercises that we walk through that help break strategy down into its, its sort of components, its vital components. And it's really just focusing on a few things. It's all you really need to do. And the book, the essence of the book is just three things, which is you have to understand that um, when you build a business, you have to create an environment for people uh, and mostly teams. So I, I like to say uh, performance is a team sport. Mm. And if you, I follow Marcus Buckingham, big fan. He's mm -hmm. done a ton of research. And the research he did across like 19 countries was 83% of all the people he interviewed were on at least one team. Many of those were on two teams and more than that. Teams get almost everything done in business. But we never teach anyone how to be a good team leader. We just assume it's like being a parent, right? Everyone to be a parent. And as it turns out, some people are a little bit better at parenting than others. And mostly it's because they were taught, right? They, they, they got help. Um, you don't just, you're not naturally a good team leader. Uh, you have to be good at it. it is a skill you can acquire. The next is strategy and execution are one thing and you have to act like they're one thing. They are inexorably and inextricably connected. That's Simon Sinek's infinite game. If you know mm -hmm. the Simon Sinek, that's what he means. It's strategy and execution, keep going. And lastly, if you wanna grow a company, 
And remember, this is a 30-year sales and marketing guy saying this. It's all about cash. Cash should be your primary financial growth metric. Why? Because growth sucks cash. <laughs> and it sucks it in front of when, you, when you're actually growing. You have to plan ahead. So what you should do is say, how big do we want to be? What do we want to do? Okay, how much will that cost? Right. Now let's figure out how do we make that money? And that's what you do. But most people don't. They work on revenue, even profit. Those things will lie to you on your, on your, on your balance sheet or P&L. Cash is the only thing that won't lie to you. And so we're talking with Bill Flynn. We're talking about some of the big ideas in his book and the, the DIY nature of what it teaches people who read it. Um, you're so right, because what we were reminded of, I think, through the COVID-19 is th that importance of cash, because even well-run, long-standing companies with significant customer presence, it really came, it's come down to what's your cash flow like? And how do you ensure that in an uncertain time you have the cash required to carry you through? Because the type of clients I work with don't have large equity markets that they can go and get cash from. You know, they're they're privately held, they're family run businesses, and it's been taxing. So never can you forget about the importance of cash, right, Bill? Exactly. But in a growth business, especially if it's a business that's a manufacturing or construction where you have material costs, it really does suck cash far in advance of when you're going to see oh, the revenue. Yeah. You have to be aware of that. And, and we just don't do that. And again, we're not really taught that. That's what, I, that's what I think is a shame. All these things I've learned, I learned because others made mistakes before me. You know, I'm on the shoulders of giants, so to speak, right? right. And, and I found that those three things are, are really the threads that go through all of these really successful companies that thrive. And I'm not talking years. I'm talking generations and centuries. Those really great companies do the same few things really well. And the... The, the person that I think embodies this the most is a guy named Alan Mulally. Hmm. Do you know who Alan Mulally is? Yes. Most people don't, which amazes me. So I'm, I was, I've, until recently, I was a Visage speaker. So I've been around the country. I speak to hundreds and hundreds of CEOs. Sure. And I would talk about Alan Mulally. And I would say most of the people, and these are guys who are running businesses that are hundreds of millions in size. You know, they're good-sized businesses. And they don't know who he is. And to me, Alan Mulally is the best CEO we have ever had in my lifetime, at least. Why? Better than Jobs, better than Kelleher, better than um, Walton, better than Bezos, better than whoever. Why? Alan better Mulally. Better than Elon Musk? Better than Elon better, Musk? Better than Elon Musk. I'm in the middle of his book right now. It's really cool. Um, here's why. Alan Mulally uh, was the head of Boeing commercial aircraft in the 90s, and they were getting their asses kicked yes. by Airbus. He not only turned them around, but they left 9-11 better than when they went in. 9-11 hmm. was an existential crisis for the airline industry. Yes. And he had Boeing come out better than when they went in. Then guess what he did? He did it again at Ford yes. in the middle of the Great Recession. Who has ever done that? No one that I know of. No one has ever done that. Twice. If I in remember the middle correct, of crisis. Sorry, but if I remember correctly, Ford was the only U.S. manufacturer that didn't take a bailout from the federal government. So he took a little bit, but he paid it back. Okay. okay. Yeah, if you read American Icon, Bryce Hoffman talks about that in the book. He says, yeah, he took a little bit of money, but he, he paid it back immediately. But he didn't take the big chunk like GM and Chrysler and those guys. Right. Well, there yeah. you go, ladies and gentlemen. If you're a lifelong learner, which I hope you are, that's probably why you're listening to or watching this today. Um, 
that is a person to study. Maybe he's underappreciated in the business world, you know, because we have a lot of high-flying CEOs. Uh, so let's just... Uh, Wait, can I, can I add one thing? Because yeah. I just think it's the coolest thing. Yeah. Alan Mulally sent me an email three weeks ago what? because he read an article I wrote about him two years ago, and he loved it. And he gave me his personal cell phone and his email address. And he told me, anything I need, give him a call. It was the greatest half an hour I've ever had in my lifetime. It was so cool. So that's, sorry. I just so no, excited about that. that. That's good karma, right? Yeah. That comes around. And and uh, so that's that's great. That I think that speaks to the type of person he is as a person. Yeah, such a humble human being. Such a nice man. Yeah. Right. Which is one of the things you opened up by saying it's a mindset is the type of people that should read your book. Humble, uh, lifelong learners, successful parts of teams. Let's We've got a few minutes left here on on this LinkedIn Live event. What what's the content? Ta you know, kind of table of contents. Wh yeah. What are the things that people who are going to buy or get your book as a free download from you? What are they going to learn from the time they spend with your book? Yeah. So basically, it's in three parts, right? So we talked a little bit about it, but I'll I'll review. Part one is really about creating an exceptional environment that has eighty percent plus or more of your workforce fully engaged and productive. That is your primary role from a day-to-day -day perspective as a leader, in my opinion, is to create that environment uh, that does that helps all these people to really be as productive and engaged as possible. The part two is about this inexorable and inextricable and really organic connection between strategy and execution. And I go into a lot of detail on, on the high level of strategy and how execution is a way to improve your strategy, right? You, as long as you have a decent strategy and you execute on it, you can improve it as you go. And it's just going to keep going because things change, right? Markets change, tastes change, people change, technology changes. Um, that's that's the constant, right, as, as they say. And then part three, as we already mentioned, is really in defense of cash being the primary financial growth metric. So what in your research for this book and your life experience, why are uh, companies so likely to fail, especially early stage companies, but at all stages? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So um, this is just a theory, Rick. So I, I don't really know. I have no science to back this up. But I think one of the reasons why, if you look at the curve, there's the, the thing I mentioned is actually a curve by, I think it's the U.S. Bureau of Labor oh, from 1995 to 2010. And it's a horrible curve, right? It just keeps going down and down and down. And, and it, 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 the, the curve lessens as time goes by, but it still keeps going down. Year 18, it's at 23% of, of companies survive. But what I've found is that... Uh, and I, and I think this applies is that over time, the things start to add up. The things that you don't do well um, and you get sort of messed up as you go and you hire badly and all these sort of little mistakes you make, they just start to add up. And the bigger you get, the harder they are to fix. And there are really three things that I have, have sort of said, why does this happen? One is that there's a, there is a sizable gap between what science knows and business does. There is so much great research on how companies have been successful. You know, uh, there's neuroscience that we can use, cognitive psychology, and we just ignore it. Um, the second thing is that few things truly matter in business and in life, to be honest with you. But those that do matter tremendously. And as a leader, you need to spend 80 to 90% of your time on figuring out the few things and just relentlessly working on those things. I think there, th there are three things, right? Team, execution, and strategy tied together, and then cash. If you focus on those three things, I think you'll do relatively well. Um, 
and then uh, lastly is, you know, we we too often, especially I think those of us in the West and maybe in the US, bias to action is a wonderful thing, but you have to deduce before you produce, right? I think you have to spend a little more time thinking and doing, you know, think like a rocket scientist, right? What are the ramifications if we do this? You know, what 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 are the ripples, et cetera? And, and do that up front because it's not just starting, it's the entire journey that you're really thinking about and you'll shrink the length of the journey if you spend just a little more time up front but we have a hard time doing that we just want to get going um and i think that's something that that gets in the way that's true my uh, latest book killing cats leads to rats is about mitigating the unintended consequences mm -hmm. of business decisions yeah. and what you just said resonates with me because we don't spend the time scenario planning especially in the lower middle market companies who have an entrepreneur driving them who tends to be a high D who tends to be an action oriented individual and they just want to get things done and yeah. and not uh, not think about it because sometimes you know your gut tells you what to do and you just fire off and do it and and, and, and guts are almost are often very right but there's a thing called a gut check and yes. and I think it's a good thing to do check it just make yes. sure you're right. You know, you, you said, number two, a few things matter, but the things that matter you need to really be careful and pay attention to as the leader. Uh, it sounds like, for me, for, to me, part of that is culture. You're talking about an engaged workforce. You had a goal of 80%. When you look at the Gallup Q12 survey, there's not 80% of the American workforce that is engaged at work. I mean, it just isn't. No. And I think engagement works better in smaller companies. I think engagement is tough to scale. Bigger companies have a challenge with it, which I think is an opportunity for middle market CEOs to really focus on engagement as a differentiator. Yeah. I don't think it's tough. I think we just ignore it. I think we get distracted by other things. And the reason I think it's really, so I've done 10 startups and, and et cetera, it's because the group is so small and you're so close to each other. Culture just happens. Yes. You know each other, you know dogs' yes. names, you know kids' names. <laughs> then you start adding all these filters in and you forget to, to tunnel through to get back through, you're not going to remember everyone's name when you have thousands of people. But still, you can you can create this culture, but you have to deliberately do it. Yes, a and friend we don't. of mine, a friend of mine, Rick Gerard, is just finishing up his first book on hiring, and a big part of that is hiring to your culture, and that is a challenge for many people. They hire for skills, they hire to get a job done. Maybe not how well that person fits in the company's culture, which ultimately I think you'll agree with me, Bill. I think it's more important than the job skills and the experience that the person has. Yeah, I say hire for fit and minimum skill. If you can get maximum skill and fit, great, go for it. But you almost can't. But we try to hire for the job right now. And then we get pissed off because the person that we hired 91 days later turns out to be someone else. Right. And, and we're really surprised because you didn't go through the process. And it's really hard because you don't really know how someone's going to act until you put them in that situation. Right. But if you rework your hiring process to try to emulate that as much as possible, you've at least increased your chances of that person being relatively close to the same person you interviewed. Excellent. So if someone out there now would like to get in touch with you, maybe they want the PDF version of the book or mm -hmm. just to talk with you more, how do they get in touch with you, Bill Flynn? Yeah, all my contact info, everything is on my website, which is scrolling at the bottom there, which is catalystgrowthadvisors.com. Um, my phone number's on there. My You can book a 15, 30 or 60 minute meeting with me on there. Everything, every way you can get to me is on my website, including the book and the resources and all that. 
Well, I want to thank you for spending 20 minutes with me here on LinkedIn Live and sharing just a bit of what you know and your impressive track record. Thanks for taking the time to write the book and now be out promoting it and raising the awareness for it. I've really enjoyed the interview. Welcome to the Renaissance Executive Forum's Critical Mass community, and thanks for being a friend of the program. Oh. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Thank you for having me on, Rick. It was really great. Appreciate it. Bye. You have been listening to Critical Mass Radio Show Business Talk Show focused on exploring topics of interest to CEOs who are leading middle market companies. With your host, Richard Franzi.